and welcome to this episode of Battling Business with me, Chris Kitchener. And me, Gareth Tennant. In this podcast, we're hoping to explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders, and businesses tick. And this week's podcast is sponsored by the finest cup of coffee in Oxfordshire because it's a cold winter morning. Well, more importantly, it's also because we have our first guest and so we had to roll out the best coffee that we had. We're very pleased to say that we have our first guest with us today and his name is John Creswell. And just to introduce him, um, he joined the army 25 years ago as a gunner and because that wasn't hard enough, apparently, um, he chose to do the all arms commando course, which gave him the right to wear the green commando beret worn by the Royal Marines. He then went on to command 2-9 Commando Regiment, the Commando Gunners. So those are the gunners who work very closely with the Royal Marine Commandos. And uh, is now the Deputy Commanding General of the 1st French Infantry Division, uh, which has over 33,000 soldiers in his organisation. So if ever there was someone to come and talk about the, 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 the perils, the joys, the pitfalls of leadership management and running an organisation, I think John is the right one. And just to finish off... You, you always have to go and try and find something that your guest has said. And in the time-honored fashion, I crawled his LinkedIn profile and I found something which actually I might have to steal for myself, where talking about his role, he said, it's to ensure my organization and its people are confident in their roles, proficient in their skills and resolute in their delivery. And if that's not a good statement uh, from a leadership perspective, then I don't know where. So welcome, welcome John Creswell to, uh, welcome to the podcast. Guys, great to be with you today. Thank you. The topic I wanted to sort of start on today was one that came from me, I think. And whether or not we get through all of these or not, whether we do the, uh, the inevitable, we'll do this in another episode. I wanted to talk about fear uncertainty and adaptation and and to give to give a little bit more color to it i think when if you start with fear military fear or fear in the armed forces is a bit of a cliche in the sense that everyone everyone understands it there is imminent danger um there are people with explosives there's yeah all these reasons why you would of course imagine why there would be fear Lots of books have been written, films have been made. But what I thought was really interesting when I thought about it is if you now think about business, I don't think I really hear people talking about fear. I almost wonder whether it's, it's you're, you're not allowed to talk about fear. I think there are a lot of conversations now about imposter syndrome, and I think that relates very closely to fear. Um, so whether people are talking about fear but not actually mentioning the word I don't know but I think there's there's a close relationship between imposter syndrome and the uncomfortable situation you might find yourself in in a position within the workplace and I think that there's an interesting dynamic when we go back to the military idea of fear you've obviously mentioned the physical aspect the danger um, which I think is very um, visceral and, and, and people will be very aware of um, but from my experience and I don't know how John feels about this that that fear definitely exists when you're in dangerous situations 
Um, but you have coping mechanisms, you put that to the back of your mind, you get on with the job. But I find the fear of uh, being in a position of command uh, and the fear of being exposed, of being in a situation where you're not qualified, is a much more challenging aspect of, uh, of the job. Well, th- this is why I wanted to talk about it, because I think there's, as you've talked about, there's the fear of not being good enough, mm. there's the fear of letting others down, and there's the fear of change. And, and in a minute, I want to talk about just the emotion of fear in itself is natural and understandable, but I don't know how valuable it is, as it were. But I want to talk about what we do to counter it and what we do beyond. But before we do that, we have a guest. And I <laughs> and I, I love the idea. If someone said to me, congratulations, Chris, you're now going to become the deputy commanding general of not just a British division, but a French division with 33. How, how did you approach that job? I'm not suggesting there was fear, but how did you feel when they, they handed you the slip of paper that said congratulations? Well, thank you indeed, Chris. There was fear. There was fear, of course, for the very reasons that that you've both set out. And I I love the simplicity of the challenge of this subject, which reveals itself to be so complicated, so complicated in, in all its textures. And you're right to say fear is natural. I, I had some sort of vision as, as you spoke about the nature of fear. And I thought about taming a wild horse. What do you do? Do you ignore the horse? Do you let it run off thinking, I'm not capable? Do you try and tame the horse? Do you back the horse? Do you transform the horse into something different? Um, you know, fear as this, as this emotion, as this, as this force, which can be harnessed for good, I think is, is really interesting. He's got a great subject here. Back to your question, how did I feel? Well, I was over the moon over the moon at, at the opportunity to go and, and work with our French colleagues. It's, it's been the most, I'll say this, most genuinely, and you'll say I've got Stockholm Syndrome, but um, it's been the most ex- extraordinary experience of my, of my career to date. It has been fantastic working with great people. But doing everything you do in a foreign language changes everything. Oh, I fear, I'm scared stiff at times. How do I manage that yeah. is the question, I think. Well, I, th- I think that's really important because I that that was the point I wanted to make, which is and and by the way, the reason why this comes up is because um, I've felt that I've been in situations where I've started a role and all of a sudden someone says, "These are the things you have to do. These are the problems you solve." And as an experienced person, I realised we are where we are after many years of an organisation sort of going down that road. So it's mm. not easy to change. But the bit that was interesting is exactly what you said, John, which is I. I the, the, there's a risk. I'm going to say, I think you should embrace the fear. As in, as I grew up, it was this idea that to be scared of something was somehow bad. And I think that that's not useful. It's okay to be worried. I think the point that you've just made, John, is what do you do to overcome that fear? Or actually, how do you turn that fear into something useful? And I think that there's a couple of things that occur to me. And again, I want to, I think, you know, I think both of you have some interesting real world example of this but the first thing is um training yeah i think training and experience i guess those are different forms of the same thing which says i i may not have come across this exact situation but i have sufficient evidence for myself that i have done something similar or even survived or thrived in something or failed but actually i've learned from that so that i think i think 
that's the first thing is, in fact, rather than sort of talking about experience, the first thing is to confront it and say, okay, what am I going to do about this? How do I turn this into a positive and how do I think yeah. about this? I think there's a, there's a really interesting sort of human dynamic, part of the human condition, which is that we are more scared of uncertainty and the unknown than we are of things that we do know about, even though we might know that they're incredibly dangerous. And, and your point about training means that the, the physical risk of combat operations, um, although dangerous situations are scary places, I certainly never found that the fear was paralyzing because we'd emulated that danger on exercises through training. And I was very aware of the risks um, and I felt somehow more in control Whereas I think all of the things we've been talking about, taking on new jobs and new roles, there's a huge amount of uh, fear of failure and fear of uncertainty, which is just innate in us, isn't it? That that it overwhelms is. us. But I, I think there's a really interesting difference there, which is when we talked about fear of roles, I think the point is the variables that could present themselves to us when we start a new role mm. are very high. You know, you've got lots of people, you, you can't predict the situation as opposed to here is a task which I've done many times before and I can practice. Yeah. So it's almost, I don't know that you can practice those things, but, you know, John, what did what did you do to prepare, you know, you're packing your bag to jump in the car to drive south to France. How did you mentally prepare yourself? I prepared I prepared, and I think the conversation to date has brought this. You've, you've talked about experience, but it's knowledge. It's fear of the unknown. So I needed to, to prick that bubble. I needed knowledge. I needed to understand. I needed to understand my role. I needed to understand where I was going. And I needed, in terms of French language, a level of proficiency in military French, in technical French, to allow me to do my job. So it was fear of the unknown. I needed to transform the unknown into something I could manage. And that was through knowledge, through learning, finding out what I needed to know to understand. So this is a very mundane question, but that's really interesting. The how do you know what your role is? So as, as someone who hasn't had the career in the military that you have, for me to start a new job, I go talk to my CEO and we spend a couple of hours and I talk to various other senior people in the organisation to effectively figure out what my role is, what the rhythm is. How do you do that when you're joining effectively another army in another language? How did you, how did you know what your role was going to be or did you turn up and, as it were, figure it out on the job? Well, it's both, of course. In terms of the formal articulation of, of your role, in terms of any any organisation, it's set out. It's set out. You know, you, you apply for a job and here is the job specification. That's not the uncertainty. The uncertainty in reality is, is the ecosystem you're joining, not the two-dimensional organisation that's set out on an org chart. It's how things happen in reality the relationships, how you are perceived. Um, where is your leverage? How do you persuade? Mm. What is your? What are your levers? Those are the things you need to understand. So the answer to your question is, is both. I was very clear on what my role was going to be, what, what my role is today. 
but the deeper textures, the layers of how the organisation functions, how the organisation thinks and goes forward, how it makes its decisions, that is not apparent. And certainly in, a, in, a, in an overseas culture, in a different culture, well, yes, you do learn as you, as you arrive. So I, I think this is an interesting time to flip it around as well. So I, I, I don't have sort of that. 33,000 people, different country. But I, I've been very lucky. I've worked in a smaller organisation that was acquired by a much larger organisation. So rather than my fear purely around what that would mean, what was really interesting was an institutional fear of change. So rather than it being one person worried about what the future would bring, there was 130 of us who were worried about what the future would bring. And so I think that the, the, an interesting way to talk about the fear is not just not just how you feel, but how other people in the organisation feel. Mm. And the thing that's really interesting to me that I, I have seen on a number of occasions, and I can only assume in your careers even more, is people are watching you as a leader and actually saying, how's this going to work out for us? And so there is the they look to you and say, knowing as we've discussed, you know, you turn up on the first day at work. And I do remember this from a job where I turn up on the first day at work and my team literally was sitting there on the end of a Zoom call looking at me going, so what now? In fact, I think those were the exact words. What are we going to do now? And so what's really interesting is how when you're nervous and you're worried, how do you mask is the wrong word. How do you interact with other people? Because the first thing you can't do is turn up and say, well, I'm really I'm really worried about this. I have no idea how it goes. So. There's this idea, I don't know, Gareth, whether you've got any experience, you know, you, you as a troop commander, you know, having been out to Afghanistan, the first time you, you went out to your first war fighting troop, how did that feel the first time you stood in front of them? And what did you do? How did you how did you set the right tone and tempo, even though I'm pretty sure inside you were thinking they're going to they're going to laugh at me? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think there's a, a point in there that I want to come back to in terms of organisational fear. Um, but in response to your specific question, I left training and went straight to 4-5 Commando up in Arbraith in Scotland um, and took over a troop that we knew was deploying to Afghanistan within six months. And I had sleepless nights thinking about my first formal introduction to the troop. That moment where the old troop commander says, thanks for everything, goodbye, here's your new boss. And I, despite all of the anxiety about going on operations and doing the job, the thing that scared me most was that first interaction. Um, and I thought about what I was going to say and I rehearsed it in my head. I think I even wrote you know, notes down. Uh, and when it came to it, it was a Friday afternoon and all the lads wanted to do was get on the road and go home for the weekend. And they had very little interest in, in, in what I had to say. And I think you come back to your point about you know, personal narratives, about empathy and about understanding the relation between what you're trying to communicate and what other people are receiving. Um, because I needn't have worried because it's old hat to them. They had seen many bosses come through. It wasn't that big a deal. But for me, this was the scariest moment. But what what was your... I mean, I think I think that's very well said that it turns out that most of these things have happened before and they've yeah. been through it all before. And it, it's, it's us placing our own spotlight on our own fears. Um, but 
what what was the first thing you said to them i mean what i you know i can't remember because it was such an insignificant moment in in my troop command uh, and we went through so much that that has kind of faded in memory but i probably stuttered out something that was uh pompous and you know wholly inappropriate and but yeah, I, I, can't, I honestly can't there's, remember. There's, there's a lovely question, and I'm, I'm going to ask you about this in a second, John, because I think the more senior you get, the word I'm going to use becomes more dangerous, which is I'm a big believer in finding the right level of vulnerability. Now, what I don't mean is to say, hey, everyone, I don't know whether I can do this. We, you know, What I do mean, though, about vulnerability is, is particularly honesty. Mm. So I've been in places where you say... Things are not great because if I say things are great, they immediately go ding, ding, ding. You, yeah. you, you either don't understand or you're lying to us. And and so I think that I've always tried to be genuine and honest from the start because that way there's there's no second. There'll be no slipping of the mask. There's no, no the next day where it turns out you we thought you were one thing. But what what? What about for you, John? What was the how? How do you approach that vulnerability as someone as senior as you are? What's what? What is? Uh, I don't know if this is the road. What's appropriate vulnerability? It's a brilliant question, and I'm just coming back to what you said about when you turn up at an organisation. The, the challenge of showing your fears. But of course, you can, and I think you should, but it's how you articulate those. And the further you go up the ladder, I think the easier it is. It enables you. And let's go back to Gareth's example, which which I've been in as well. I, you know, I, I shared exactly the same experience. If you are a troop officer, a lieutenant, stood in front of your Marines or commando gunners with your troop sergeant next to you, and you start asking silly questions about how the radio works or how the GPMG feeds in its, its rounds or whatever, then you're going to lose credibility because mm. that is your job. However, as you go up, we'll decide how far you think you need to go up, but you know, certainly where I find myself now as the, as the, as the gunner commander of the division, I can ask those stupid questions, especially in another nationality i can say could you explain to me please how your rifle works could you explain to me people please how your radio works i can ask silly questions i say silly questions but what i'm trying to do is get people to talk to me um so how did i address this because i shared i share that experience that gareth has articulated and i've gone through it recently as you've shown and i've suddenly raised people want to talk how do i enable people to talk to me. How do I unbottle it? Now, some of it, I am asking genuine questions because I don't know. And the best way to find out something you don't know is to ask somebody that does. So it doesn't matter what rank they are. So throw away your, your inhibition or your pride and say, I don't know. For me, that is a degree of vulnerability. I, I, I don't know, agree. please explain. But by doing that, you empower the speaker. Well, I think I think we're going back to this sort of first thing of fear and how you deal with it. Because the first thing is, if all of a sudden all you can think about is fear, you're, you're actually in a bit of trouble. But what you've just started to talk about is, is tactics and methods by which you overcome it. And the first statement is, 
you you think about how you're going to solve whatever the problem is or how do you understand the problem so i i, I think i am a huge fan of questions uh, throughout my career the smartest people are the ones if you go back in time rewind what they said they asked really interesting questions so actually your question about how does this gun work i mean at one level you know exactly how the gun works you've worked with many guns but what you're actually potentially doing i don't know if this is with your intention is does this soldier understand how his gun works how does mm. this soldier interact with a senior officer actually what you're doing is you are getting a bigger pic a broader picture and the question is merely a vehicle um and i i think building off that the, the the vulnerability to build empathy the next thing that i always think that people want to know about so in that first example let's say whether it's your troop gareth or or john when you have sort of a whichever's the first poor platoon that's rolled out in front of the general that's just arrived from the UK. The one thing which I am very, very aware of is that informally, this is an audition. It's not just mm. they're, they're auditioning for you. Is this a competent organisation? Who are the skilled operators? How do they work? But the, the bit that I think is more interesting for this conversation is they are auditioning you. And going back to the thing about how you perceived your troop will have gone to the pub with their mates from another troop and has said, as you knew Boston, and then have said, oh, he's an idiot. Or, well, all, or, or actually, he was all right. And, and yeah. likewise. And I think the we, we talked about narrative in previous episodes. Uh, one of the things I've learned as, as I've gone through my career is that every meeting no matter how seemingly insignificant it is, is an audition yeah. and feeds back into this thing. And it it's this loop of, if they think th that you have a fighting chance of solving the problems, yeah. all of a sudden they're on your side. The moment they say, this guy turned up, looks like a frightened rabbit, doesn't know what he's doing, hasn't prepared, all of a sudden your problem has doubled in size now because you have to bring the rest of the team with you. I think I, I want to pick up on what, John said about as you climb higher up in an organisation, um, you have the ability to expose sort of ignorance around tactical tactical problems, how the rifle works or whatever. Um, I think there's there's two really important aspects, um, which is you are establishing your credibility by proving your competence in what you are supposed to be there to do, and the vulnerability then comes in when it's about solving the problems that the organisation needs to solve. And I think at a very low level, you're dealing with relatively simple problems. Um, and the higher up the organisation you go, the more complex the problems become. And therefore, it's not about knowing the answers. It's about leading the organisation to find the answers. Yeah. So your point, John, about you know, if you don't know how your rifle works as a troop commander, you're going to lose credibility. And I remember one of my first sort of tests, I suppose, was I found myself in Norway. We did an Arctic winter deployment before we went to Afghanistan, um, and I was lost. I got my troop lost somewhere in, you know, northern Norway um, in the middle of the night, uh, and I was, again, frozen with fear that I'd failed. That, you know, really early on in my career, I'd got my troop lost, this was my job and I couldn't do it and this was going to be, you know, potentially the end of my troop command, the end of my career. And of course it wasn't. Getting lost in the Arctic, navigating the Arctic is quite a difficult thing to do. 
Uh, and one so I eventually turn left at the tree. Yeah, well, I mean, the, there's only trees. This is the problem. There's, there's only white mountains and trees, and everything looks the same. Um, so it's like micro navigation. You're having to use compass bearings, but it took me a lot of time and a lot of courage to ask my troop sergeant and my section commanders to help me. And we very, very quickly, as a team, worked out the answer. And no one thought anything of it. But in my mind, this was my job and I'd failed. And in reality, my job was to work with the team to solve this problem. And I suspect, is, and we'll, John, I'd like, like to get your, your opinion on this, you're now in a position where you're not solving simple problems or even complicated problems but you're solving complex problems that interaction between culture command the task well we've 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 talked about this and i i think for for people who whether you're at sort of the beginning of your career or more senior in your career what you've just talked about is empowering your team to be successful Mm. you you have lots of people around you have skills and experience you Mm. don't have there's almost this cliche that as a leader you have to have all the answers and we were talking about this morning as a leader actually that is specifically not what you need to have if you have it that's fantastic but you need to convince your people that you will lead them to the right decision and by doing so you use other people so um i i think absolutely and i think we're getting to this point in the conversation where we're seeing a difference between leading doers a simple transaction, please do this for me, and a task is done, versus leading thinkers. So now we've got a problem on the table, and we're empowering a team mm. to come up with a solution. This brings us to the, the, the word of the moment, diversity. But I don't mean that in a, in a politically correct type sense, um, though it is applicable. I mean that in a thought, experience, understanding sense a brainstorming approach with a wide variety of experiences of cultures of thoughts i believe gets you to a solution or at least a platform from where a solution might be derived maybe that solution is a negative it is a decision not to do something but having a an optimum group of people thinking bringing a, a diverse viewpoint, series of viewpoints, I think gets you quickly to a point. But that doesn't mean the group makes the decision. I, that is so well said. So, you know, we haven't talked about product management this this episode, and I think it's important we do because I know that's what everyone really cares about. But this was something as a, as a product manager. So the whole one of the, the premises of this podcast is that the, the world of the military and business is actually more similar than I think so typically you work in scrum which is a methodology and there'll be a team which is a team of a product manager who will decide will be the voice of the customer and decide what to build you'll have engineers will go away and build it testers to go and test it and designers to help design a great experience so look there we go lots of people the experience you bring together and when I was when I was a young product manager um Someone wisely said to me, you should use your team because they know things that you don't know. And as a green junior product manager, what I thought that meant was we should, in effect, do things by committee. So we would go around the room and we would say, should it be red or blue? And someone said, I think it should be red. Someone else, I think it should be blue. I think it should be orange. 
And and it turns out that, that we weren't successful. But your point about the leader role was the moment that this was resolved for me was when I realised it's really valuable and important to get that feedback from the rest of your team, have the diversity of ideas, explore things in the next world. But everyone has a role. And weirdly, everyone is actually far more comfortable when they're in the role. So the, what I realised was rather than this being by committee, and you really don't want to get me onto a story about how I've seen product managers product managed by committee. By the way, I never did that. The role was you went around the room and said, this is the problem we're trying to solve. How could we solve it? And everyone would say, red, blue, orange, white. And you would say, thank you for your input. Yeah. I'm the person accountable. Here's the decision I'm going to make and why. Engineer, please now go away and solve that problem for yourself, designer. And actually, all of a sudden, rather than fearing that everyone said, but I want it to be orange or blue, they all went, great, thank you for that decision. Whether we agree with it or don't agree with it, that's not important now. You heard us. You listened, you used your experience, and then we went ahead, we made a decision, move forward. So from a, from a product management perspective, that was such an important thing was we all have roles. Those roles not only protect us, they enable us. And rather than this assumption that if someone disagrees, that's bad, this structure of having a role means people go, no, that's great. That's I know what my role is. I know what your role is. Boss, if you told me how to clean my weapon and how to pack my rucksack, I'd get a bit annoyed. But yeah. the fact you're telling us where to go. And I wonder whether there's, again, that's a, another really good example of if you flip that over into the military world, your perfect example, which was you said to the, your team, Gareth, okay, where are we? What are we going to do? But at the end of the day, you still said, thank you. Yes, we are here. This is where we're going to go. So it's that that combination, which I think is really important. Here's the point you've highlighted there, coming back to fear. Is the leader has accepted, has taken the burden of fear yeah. from the team. That's such a good point. I think the, the word you use was accountability, mm -hmm. and I think that's so crucial because half of the challenge is not only recognising that you have a, a, a challenge to solve, but also who in the organisation needs to solve it. And of course, as a troop commander, I had very simple challenges you know I've got to get to a certain place by a certain time in order to carry out a certain activity you have lots of sub teams sub units sub organizations so how do you balance what is your challenge that you need to be the leader of and how do you recognize other people's challenges where you need to delegate that out you must listen but that ultimately is the job of of the leader and I, I do I do think analyzing what we mean by leader is really interesting there's no word for leader in French it's really, really interesting there's no word for leader or leadership I'm not going to go into the, the George Bush you know joke about the French don't have a word for entrepreneur but but that doesn't mean it the concept doesn't exist of course they would use command I think um, or, or, or direct um, so the concept is very much there, but it's a notion of what is a leader, and I've just been doodling here, because I think there's a fundamental difference between a leader who is there to motivate people to do something, yeah. versus a decision maker who is going to take a decision, yeah. which I think militarily we'd say is command, um, That is a which is not necessarily directly linked to the motivation aspect, because you might be a very good commander, but not a very good leader. Yeah. Um, you also need somebody in this this triumvirate that manages resource 
But I'm where I'm taking this to is there is a danger that you might lead people in the wrong direction. You might lead people without thinking about the resource, in which case you run out of road, fuel, whatever. So you need to have a thinker. You need to have a motivator. And you need to have a banker. I, if you are not all three, you need to recognise which one you are and buy the other two. Well, it's, it's... So th these are the moments which make me smile in these when you think, here's a thing I've come across in my career and it must be unique. And of course it's not unique. You have just described how venture capitalists sit down with organisations that they have just funded. Yeah. And they say exactly what you have just said. And they add a little bit more layers to it. But the principle is exactly that, which is they are typically working with organisations where there is a founder who has been all of those things and has compensated they're strong at some things. Typically, they're strong at the motivation. To be a founder, you have to go and pitch the business. You have to, But as you become more mature, exactly that, you need to sit down and say, well, what skills do we need? And let's separate those out. And so they talk in terms of CEOs. There are some CEOs that are the thinkers, but are dreadful in person. As in, don't send them out to the investors. Don't send them out to the customers. Yeah. We will go and find someone who becomes that figurehead. So it's so interesting that, that you say that. But of course, ha I mean, my flip side is in, in organizations and when you've got scaling businesses, you can say, well, I'm going to hire a person who's my chief operating officer, my person. Who, there's lots of roles that can do this. How does that happen in the military? So how do you, your statement, which I think is bang on, which is as a leader, you have to understand where your skills are. You have to understand that you need a certain set of skills for the organization to be successful. And where you don't have those skills, you need to find the people to do it. How do you have that in what I would assume is a relatively rigid organization? I can't believe the military says, well, you know, you should have the thinker, you should have the person who goes on to Facebook. How does the military approach this? Or, well, I love or does what, it? Well, I love what you say about the military being a rigid organization. Because I'm in the military and I don't regard it as a rigid organization. I see the outer shell as looking rigid. I see the structure as being strong, like the, the beams of a ship creaking in a storm. But within it, I see nothing but agility. So, so talk talk about that because I and I and and to be fair, I I I've because I know enough people in the military. I know there's a lot more. I know there's a lot more. But the perception from outside of the military is the military follows orders. There will be orders for everything, and indeed there are orders for everything. But talk more about what latitude you have for agility. So in your career. In your experiences, where have you had to follow a, a, a path because that's the path that's written versus how much and where do you are told, here's a blank piece of paper, go, the, the outcome and the mission is the most important thing. What must you do to be successful? I'd, I'd widen it to help me with this answer, to say life is about a series of, of boxes, of Russian dolls. I think in our general existence, and I mean, you know, the three of us sat here, we are bounded by the law. We are bounded by policy. We are bounded by ethics. And so gradually, with these rules which govern our lives, we create room for manoeuvre. And it's the same in, in military life. 
And that's why I talk about agility. I see nothing but agility in what I do. The key thing I look for is what is my room for manoeuvre? How can I create the optimum room for manoeuvre in terms of the various constraints, positive or negative, which govern the activity that I'm engaging? How, it could be financial, it could be legal, it could mm. be ethical, it could be a whole number, it could be time. Um, what is my room for manoeuvre? And once I've established my room for manoeuvre and tested that room for manoeuvre, then I have complete freedom to do whatever I need to do to deliver the outcome. The final part of that answer will be me as a, as a leader, as a commander now, because that's what I need to do for my subordinates. Yeah. I need to give them this box, this manoeuvre box, should we call it, a conceptual thinking box. There you are. That is your box to operate in. I will protect everything around it. Leave everything around it to me. Within that box, you are the master. We've talked about this on the podcast before. I think there is the Hollywood perception of the military, which is all about sergeant majors shouting at people. It's very rigid. It's very structured. There are rules for everything. And then there is the reality that you've just described, John, and that, that chimes very much with my experiences as well. And I think we are dancing around the concept of leadership, management and command. Yes where leadership, as you say, is about inspiring people to do things. Management is the allocation of resources, whether that's time, money, petrol, whatever. But the, the key thing is command, which is the structure that allows people to recognise where they apply leadership and management. And that's those boxes that you're talking about, I think. Exactly. It's, it's the delegation of authority, accountability and responsibility and making sure that that's very explicit. And I think in the military, this is something that is done very, very well, is that command structure, who owns the decision, who owns the responsibility, who is accountable, is very, very clear. Whereas I, I think in the commercial world, sometimes that gets a little I, I bit I think lost. so. So I think... Um I, I would agree with you because I think and, and not because sort of business is somehow missing a trick. I think we have to remember how businesses evolve and grow. Yes. So when you're a small organization, the idea of who is accountable, where well, we're all accountable, those lines are purposely blurred for success. But the challenge comes with typically with organizations is when they scale, they there's almost this belief that well what worked last year will work this year. And all of that means is that it's much harder for organisations institutionally to start thinking about the accountability, responsibility. But I think I think those things are there and they are very important. I mean, it, it, again, it's interesting. I, I, I've as I've been interviewed for jobs over the years, people talk about um, sort of what what's your whether it's leadership style or anything like that. One of the things that people have talked about, I, or I say, is my job is to provide um, vision strategy a goal constraints and then empower people to to do that and coach people to do that and i think that's a business way of saying effectively what you guys have said as well i think there's also a really important bridge here which is what i i term as the dialogue of command this does not happen in isolation 
there have to be bridges between these these boxes, these freedom boxes, these conceptual boxes we've talked about, empowering people with a task or a mission, resources, and a time block, i.e. when you want it done by. Um, but this is not happening in isolation, and there must be a dialogue, and this is the expression of risk, and this brings us back full circle in terms of fear. The absolute obligation of the empowered subordinate, if that's a term we want to, to use, to go back to the task giver and say, that I can do, that I can't guarantee, and this is what I need in addition, this dialogue of command. And this is the expression of risk, because the objective is not being delivered by the subordinate. The subordinate, the empowered person, is delivering the, the task, but the objective is owned by the person that gives it, by the leader, by the, the manager that gives the task. And therefore it is incumbent on the subordinate to make sure the, the, the manager, the commander, the leader, understands the level of risk associated with what well, is you've, happening. You've, you've, you've got this brilliant question, which is, should, should the the task, the goal, we want to sell a million dollars, we want to assault that hill, should the task ever change based on the feedback from the subordinates? So where I come from, the statement is we need to grow by a million dollars, a hundred million dollars, whatever the answer might be. That is the outcome full stop and any answer that doesn't achieve that outcome is considered the wrong answer. I think there's an interesting statement that says, do you want to be effective or do you just want to have a goal even if you fail to make it? Because w one of the things you've implied with when you talk about risk is, what if your subordinates come back? What if your team comes back and says, we can't do that for this reason, but we could do this. We could make $80 million. We're confident we can do that. We think it's a credible plan. Should you adapt your plans? I, I almost think this is an... This is a taboo question because the statement is that typically in throughout my career is this is the task. Go, go do the task. There seems to be no room to adapt or to change what that task is. What do you think about that? I mean, you know, both of you have real world experiences. Have you ever gone back to your boss and said, boss, we're not going to do that, but we can do this? Change the word task for outcome. Yeah. And you've changed everything. But, but can you do that, though? Because I think we're in a world where the premise of leadership management command is to achieve an outcome that some mysterious person behind a curtain declares must be true. The implication is you cannot change that. It all comes down from that person. Can you go back and change that person's mind? Is I, that allowed? I, I think we're back to what we've talked about before in mission command and the idea of separating out the outcome from the way that you go about achieving it. But but I'm going one step further. Saying, I'm saying, can, can you change the outcome? Absolute, and, and, absolutely. And, and I ask that question, not just the, can you say no to people? That's, that's I think lots of people would say, yeah. oh, you can say no, this was hard, I'm not going to do it. But actually, that can you not necessarily change the outcome? Can you say, I cannot, we cannot achieve this outcome, but we, we could be more 
effective or have a greater chance of achieving this outcome, which would you, would you like? Would you like a 50% chance of failing at this activity or would you like a 90% chance of succeeding at that activity? If you're... If the culture of the organisation allows you to deal in outcomes, then you make your organisation much more agile, much more flexible, and you empower at the lowest possible level. Doesn't mean you. Doesn't mean that's optimum, because you might be in circumstances where the box is so small you are giving a task. It needs to be this. It's black and white for time reasons for whatever. In which case you must accept it, but. But there, the dialogue is still important. The dialogue is still important in terms of representing the risk. Be advised, we might not be able to achieve this. Or, we might have catastrophic success, in which case, we will be able to go further. But that dialogue, that honest dialogue, is so important. I think that's what I'm really getting at, because I think there is, you know, we, we started with the concept of fear... And so we almost, and to, and to use a phrase that lots of people, you almost have to fake it until you make it. You have to be confident. You have to project confidence. There's a point, though, at which that becomes self-defeating when confidence says, I am unable and unwilling to listen to what's going on. So I think that's interesting. Change. Well, look, we, we, we started by saying we'd talk about fear, uncertainty and adaptability. And I'm afraid, I don't know if you saw what I did there, we only talked about fear, but frankly, mm. I suspect we did actually touch on uncertainty and adaptability. But maybe maybe that's a reasonable place to finish. Maybe we have to convince John to come back at some point in the future to carry on the conversation. I, I think that would be wonderful. Um, if I may, I think we, we started with talking about the individual fear, and we talked about it from the position of a new leader. Um, uh, and there was conversation about the the difference between the fear of external factors physical fear and then the fear of failure the fear of exposure um, and i think what john has very articulately brought us to is this command relationship and for me i think by creating those very clear command lines those bridges between the boxes the very clear bounds of accountability responsibility and authority what you allow is the removal of the fear of exposure within the organization which allows individuals to be empowered to say i'm not going to be able to achieve this or these are the external risk that I face and I think that is what is absolutely crucial when organisations are facing external complexities because it's that dialogue, it's that communication as we've talked about. So for me the relationship between fear and command is about creating those bridges so that people are able to express their fears of the external environment, the risk without feeling that they are exposed, without feeling that they're highlighting to their boss that they don't know what they're doing or they're inadequate. And that, I think, is absolutely crucial. And I would just go on with one of my, my favourite subjects on this to take, take that forward, is the various platforms that allow these divergent views, this dialogue of command, whether it be red teaming, whether it be wargaming, whether yeah. it be what-ifs, a whole number of wearing different hats... I was once in an organisation where the boss told me that whatever he said, I was to oppose him. 
Yeah. I was to disagree yeah. with him. He wanted his team to disagree with him in private for the intellectual exercise of opening up the debate. It was empowering to be told by your superior, whatever I say, your response is, I don't agree. Yeah. Out of principle. There's, I think, you know, maybe we, we, we've got a very long list of... of um podcast episodes this has to be one of them because my contention which we talked about earlier is that in the military the concept of red teaming the fact that you even have a term for it yeah is something which i have very very rarely come across in in the business world i think the business world is is focused on planning for a, an unknown future or a design outcome i think more often than not it's it's not as good at saying what happens if it all goes wrong, how how do you literally make a plan from scratch in twenty four hours? And I think that's a, so. We we all have to come back and do that. We'll Absolutely, that. and we we will do a whole episode on war gaming, red teaming, measurement of effectiveness, uh, and all the things that that, that encompasses. Um, I think that's probably about as far as we're going to go with this episode. So, um, John, thank you very much for your time. I know it's very valuable. Um, yeah, thank you for joining us. If you've liked what you've heard, then uh, please do tell your friends about it. We'd also love for you to join the conversation, and we'd like to hear your stories, your ideas, or even your suggestions for future topics. Um, you can follow us, suggest future topics, and ask questions uh, by engaging with us on our Twitter at BattlingWithBiz. That's Biz with a Z. But for now, though, thank you very much for joining us, and goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you, goodbye.